one more. Yeah, that's, that yeah, that's better. Thank you. How are you? Good, I think. Yeah, that's better. <laughs> I was a bit like that's because I think he turned you <laughs> up. Actually, why am I doing this? I'm obviously yeah. incapable. Yeah, I'm good. I was twiddling the knob that had nothing attached to it, <laughs> which is a metaphor for life. Is it? <laughs> Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the studio. We are so excited to have something, it's not off-piste, but just a little bit of a different angle today, where, as well as looking at retail, digital, and all matters linked, we are uh, in the studio talking about books. And for those of uh, our listeners who are over 12 years old, books are very much at the forefront of the growth of e-commerce with Amazon, I think, jumping on the fact that there was the ISBN catalogue, very nicely structured with an educated credit card owning, intensely enthusiastic customer base to accelerate their growth. We've seen the death of the book, the rebirth of the book, the birth of the e-reader, the decline of the e-reader, who knows what's happening next. But to give some insights and to hear uh, some of the fascinating dynamics, it's great to be joined in the studio, as ever, by Georgia and today by Kieran. So welcome both. Tell everybody who you are. Georgia, you go first and then we'll bring in Kieran. Sorry, I'm laughing because I like how you segued into the intros. It was very good. Uh, I'm Georgia. I'm head of marketing at Adobe. Lovely. Kieran, tell everyone who you are. My name's Kieran and I'm digital director for Blackwells. Lovely. Now, as a bibliophile who was once in debt to Blackwells, I know the history of some of it anyway, but do you want to just give us a thumbnail sketch of Blackwells and how it fits into the current uh, state of the group and book selling in total in your own time? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've got quite a number of years to cover there. Um, so Blackwells has been around since 1879 and for the majority of its history was a family firm founded by Benjamin Henry Blackwell. Um, BH as we call it. BH Blackwell indeed at the time and he it was a very small shop actually when he first opened um, and he, he moved from London to Oxford to set up the shop and took with him a number of, and it would have been at kind of what we would think of as antiquarian books, so secondhand academic titles at that point. And it would probably have been not much bigger than this studio, so not <laughs> much bigger than a, um, a, a small, yes. small kitchen. Or, a David uh, Cameron-sized shepherd's indeed, hut. Indeed. <laughs> uh, and it's it's interesting that you should mention kind of being in debt to Blackwells because you're, you've got quite a famous... Um, someone else who was also in debt quite famously to Blackwell. I don't know if you know that story. but no. Uh, no. Well, after Benjamin Henry Blackwell became, um, Basil Blackwell mm -hmm. took over, so his yeah. son, who ran the business for a long time and also expanded from being just a bookseller to being a publisher as well. Um, it was also the only bookseller ever to be knighted in the, in the UK. But anyway, he, he was uh, a young academic, uh, owed like Mr. Blackwell money at that point uh, which was a certain J.R.L. Tolkien wow. really and in order to settle his debt he went to meet with him in Broad Street and said I haven't got any cash <laughs> what I can what I've done is I've written this uh, poem uh, in order to write off my debt this sounds a bit sort of magic beans <laughs> but in order to write off my I'm just picturing Ian doing the same thing <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't want to speculate as to how good your poetry is. Uh, and he, he'd written a, a poem called Goblin Feet. Yeah. Um, F-E-A-T or F-W-E-T? F-E-E-T. All right. Early um, bit of fetish poetry. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, But Basil Blackwell agreed, and it was published oh. by Blackwell's, which was the first publication of J.R.R. Tolkien. Oh, no. Wow. So, what so debts story. can be settled in interesting ways there. Damn, I just said to check. <laughs> that, uh, so boring. I know. So, the, the group expanded from just being Oxford, which is still its probably largest shop. Mm. Um, and like many other booksellers, absorbed a few others. So, James Thin in Scotland, for example, and was became known mostly for its academic bookselling. And if we pause there, this is towards the latter part of uh, the last century when, you know, books were very much uh, integral both to culture and leisure and to academia. So I think you know, people may not realise just how 
big a deal these specialist publishers were then. Yes, no, absolutely. And it kind of mirrored the growth in the university sector and universities mm. becoming something that the majority of the population could take part in, actually. Mm. And at that point, it was a case that you were given, I mean, I'm sort of showing my age now because I remember this as well, that, you know, you were given a reading list that you, you poured over before you went to university. Yeah. And you said, oh, which one's going to go and buy? And, um, and you would try and read around that as well. You would read around your subject. And the subjects being covered at university were, you know, broad cover of the humanities. Mm. Um, and people would buy, this is like reminiscing about people buying history books and, <laughs> and reading around English literature. And I mean, these are still quite big subjects in our universities, but they're not, they're far more vocational mm. now and have moved away from kind of having these big publishers. Mm. The US has always been very different. Mm. Um, you would be taught a course from a university textbook and they famously updated them every year and they will cost hundreds of dollars. Oh. I mean, we might moan about ours costing £30, £40, but mm. you know, 120 plus dollars mm. would be standard and you had to have that book. But they were interesting there, and, and you see this now, uh, I'm jumping forward to say online learning, where you know, if you look at like English or history, you were given a broad curriculum and expected to go and explore. Yep. Whereas in the American system, and now whether you're doing an online course, you'll say there are seven modules. They go from this page to that. Here are the subheadings, the titles, the contents. So it's very much more sort of a corpus of start to finish. This is the quantum of learning you're going to get. So in many ways, that approach anticipated the growth in structured online learning as well. Yes, and I think, I mean, there's a kind of commercialization of universities mm. within that that's mm. played quite a heavy part as well, I think, rather than purely a distance learning yeah. opportunity. So, if, you know, lawyers and medics will often access significant online databases, for example, rather than it being a static textbook. Mm. And that's probably for the better for us all in terms of that <laughs> knowledge, but yeah. it, it's a different learning process, mm. definitely. So there we are, back in the last century when uh, the university sectors were changing, but also the leisure experience of consumers was changing with bookshops, you know, having sofas and becoming poshed up a bit. So I'm not sure if I've conflated 20 years into a sentence there, but yeah, yeah I, there I mean, was a growth in bookshops. There before. was. I mean, there were what we referred to at the time as category killers, mm. which were really, really big bookshops, mostly sort of the US retailers coming in. So people like Borders, for mm -hmm. example, who opened a huge shop on Oxford Street. And it was almost that they were trying to get every single book in print in those yeah. shops. Um, and that, the kind of st strange death of these category killers was, of course, the the arrival of the internet. Mm. Where and, and just the, before, the categories looked. <laughs> just before, just a, a flashback. I remember uh, when I moved to London, you could walk down Charing Cross Road, and as you headed south from Centre Point, you would pass on your left to Borders, on your right was I think a Blackwells, then a Waterstones, then you had Foils. Then you had all the specialist photography and art bookshops mm. on Chang Cross Road. And then if you hadn't lost the will to live and you crossed the river, you got to the South Bank, where there were yet more bookshops. So there was a time when, you know, books were like the vape shops of... <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> or so American sweet. American, there's American sweet sweets shop. is exactly. what I think you mean. <laughs> I think I might get my coat. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, I mean, certainly we've had a great deal of consolidation in the industry. Mm. Um, well, actually, both. I mean, you and because you did consolidate 20 years of history into kind of one <laughs> sentence, we were talking earlier about some of the stats on kind of the inflation, then conflation, then inflation on what's happened in, with bookshops. Mm. So as Ian kind of rightly pointed out, there was a proliferation <laughs> of bookshops at one point. But maybe you can kind of tell yeah, us a bit about that. I mean, so I, I went and had a look before this about the actual numbers. And this, this is yeah. independent booksellers. Yes. So rather than the chains, um, and I checked it, it was 1995. Yeah. Um, there were 1,894 bookshops in the UK. And my last stats I could find, so 2020, uh, that was down to 890. Yeah. So we'd lost 1,004 bookshops in that period, which is huge, absolutely yeah. huge. Yeah, I mean, you know? you'd, you um, over what you halved. Yes, indeed. But yeah. as I was, you know, it, it has started to grow again. 
Right. Um, both during COVID, or coming out of COVID, um, where people went much, I'd really like to open a bookshop. Yeah. Um, and, and, and also, I think it reached a point where the booksellers who were left really, really knew their stuff. Mm. Actually, they, had, they knew their markets. They might be dedicated children's booksellers or they might be other specialists, you know, got sci-fi specialists and all sorts. And they were able to consistently talk to customers and grow and often open second or third shops as well. So we've got lots of little chains opening as well around the country, yeah. which is really interesting. And I think starting to use it online. And they've probably learned how to balance you know, a multi-channel approach um, in this age, which is where you come in. Yeah, I, I mean, it's an interesting one because balance, in a way, like a bookshop is always best. Yes. Going through the doors of a bookshop. The so smell. best for whom? Best for the customer. <laughs> if I can stand in front of you in a bookshop and talk to you about books, and when I think... Chaired. Recently, I saw somebody say that bookshops are great because you can dispense with all the kind of niceties and small talk around how's the weather and all the rest of it. And you're straight into <laughs> what's that new book on AI? Have you read X? Mm. Uh, and really go straight to the nub of the matter. But it's also that they are very kind of noisy places visually. May not be mm -hmm. orally, but um, in terms of hearing, it's, you know, seeing opportunities and things that you aren't aware of, and it's kind of stereotypical and cliche around bookshops that you will get that serendipity. Mm -hmm. um, but it's also about being able to have that conversation with booksellers to get that kind of recommendation piece and to understand. Uh, I mean, there's a French uh, academic who's talked about booksellers as basically being kind of critics and filters of both high and low culture. And I kind of like that. I mean, I would like that, wouldn't I? It makes me sound very <laughs> grand. Um, but I think, you know, booksellers do think of themselves as, as a profession and mm. uh, and have a level of expertise around that because there are thousands of books published every year. But it's interesting. If, if we played this back and through some AI wizardry replaced books with luxury or with street style then there's a very similar argument there, which is that, you know, there's a, a curating, filtering, recommending voice that needs to see a book as well as the book on its own. So if I know I want a given ISBN or a given title, you know, that's what search is for. But if I'm not quite sure what else to do next or see how it fits into context, then the physicality of the store is important. So in a way, there is a, an echo of the need for advice, discrimination, knowledge via a human interface that is different to and complements the online. Yes. I mean, it's different levels of communication, isn't it, in the, what we can achieve through online. And we'd like to think, as specialist booksellers, that we've also got an opportunity online to surprise. And you know, we do this weekly email, for example, where we select from the thousands of books that are published every week. I mean, the ones that sometimes surprise us the most. Like, mm. I think there was a kind of a dust capital for cats a week ago that we were astounded had been published. Uh, just because it was oh, what, so sorry? Dust, dust capital for cats. <laughs> and there's a history of, history of revolution you, run by cats, which was an interesting... And again... But then, you know, as a cat owner... <laughs> oh, sorry, not a cat feeder. Obviously, you never own a cat. Yeah. I'm just wondering why that hasn't been done before. <laughs> Do well, indeed. indeed. I mean, this is the wonderful thing about books. I actually got a book from my sister for Christmas last year that said, how to be more like your cat. There we are. And it was, about, it was actually really good. <laughs> so maybe cat publishing. <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot of cat publishing. Oh, is there? There's oh, a, that's there's taken. A lot. Damn. <laughs> there's nothing worse than being last to the party. Yeah. <laughs> there's always room for more. Dog, but no. <laughs> so... Um, you have this um, session where you go through the thousands of books published and what, just bubble up recommendations, ideas? Yeah, I mean, there'll be a mixture each week, obviously, of titles that we're expecting to do well yeah. because they're big names or, or whatever. But, I mean, in a way, we feel that's kind of covered by some of the other brands. Um, and actually, we didn't reach the kind of end of this Blackwell's, not end, but where we are currently, yeah. in that we now exist within the Waterstones group. Um, we've got sister company with Barnes & Noble in the US, but also we're, I've got Foils and um, Wordery and... Um, Daunt. And da uh, not, no, no, Daunt, 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 Daunt uh, remain, that's a separate, a separate business yeah. owned by James Daunt. Um, 
but each one of them's got a different set of customers and therefore a different set of recommendations and a different set mm. of titles that we would, would feel would fit those customers the best. We might be right or wrong, but they, they will interact with us and tell us and we'll have plenty mm. of... <laughs> so why? That is a question I mind. So on the basis that all books are in an online database and that if you sell the book and the former Foyle sells the book and the former Waterson Stanley sells the book, it's the same book. So, uh, again, if I go back to fashion, if you're buying, let's say, I don't know, a Gantt T-shirt or a Levi's pair of jeans, it's the same pair of jeans. Why would I buy it from brand A within your portfolio rather than brand B? So from the customer perspective, what is the difference? And then from your perspective, does it make a difference? So customer first, why does the differentiation still exist? And then from your perspective, do you want it to exist or is it an inconvenience? I mean, at its core, absolutely, books are a commodity product. One of the things that appealed to Amazon at the beginning was that ability to have a kind of standard. Mm. If somebody, there's no risk, is there, if you shift and you know it's from, you know, it's a book published by Penguin and it's going to be the same book as long mm. as you've not hit some sort of weird pirated copy or something. Um <laughs> I do think, given the sheer amount of publishing um, and differences in availability as well, actually, because of that sheer amount of publishing, there are certain things that we have to do around the supply chain, for example, for Blackwells to make sure that the deep, deep tail is available, whether that's from very small academic publishers um, that you may not be able to get just because it exists as a catalogue record. Doesn't mean doesn't it's mean that it's available, gettable. physically available. And for us, that's one of our specialisms is to say, well, we know where to get that monograph from um, or even, you know, we know where to get that children's book from or whatever, mm. whatever specialist publication it is. So when you say we know where to get it from, again, isn't this something that should be knowable? Uh, <laughs> it sounds a bit Matthew when you say it like that, like I, I can score you a copy <laughs> of this. I mean... Is, is this something that someone else could have done as well? We're These are, just having to understand it's, it's that. It's more complicated than it should be. Right, great. Suppose. So you're you're right, really. Um, but because there are millions of mm. options, options <laughs> and there are also thousands of places you could buy it from, mm. potentially globally, mm. it's about kind of optimising that supply chain and, and looking. It's kind of dull stuff, it sounds, doesn't it? But because they're non-substitutional, we need to get you that book. So the, the flip side of that kind mm. of commoditization, Amazon walked away from that challenge by saying after the certain amount that they would stock in their distribution centers, they would give that challenge up to marketplace sellers. So they said, well, we would only, and they, because it's, they found that was too costly to yeah. serve and that they couldn't guarantee availability and all the rest of it. Yeah. So actually, it gave uh, a new opportunity saying beyond the, top 20,000 titles, mm. which I know sounds quite a big number. Yeah. They're available as a catalogue record, but a third-party bookseller will sell it to you. Fine. Um, so that's kind of one example of that. The other one is, of course, where your customer is and who they are. Mm -hmm. And Blackwells does a lot of export business, for example. So although it could be quite easy in the UK to walk down the road and walk into a bookshop and pick up a title, those titles might not be so easily available elsewhere and these can be really weird long tail yeah. niches within the market so for example when we integrated the welsh books council those welsh titles not really a big market in the uk because they're easy to get hold of <laughs> how do you you can go and buy them in a welsh bookshop yeah sending them to patagonia mm -hmm. has got more of a market yeah because they're not there and when we integrated the German titles, yeah. we were able to sell them to the US. We're not uh, going to sell them to Germany. Right. Or Patagonia in this case. Or Patagonia. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it's kind of finding those markets. And that's it's really interesting. That's quite interesting to me, I think. Yeah. So, you know, I was educated in Welsh. I'll do Charlotte Comrade Kevin, so I'm a Welsh speaker. I mean, you've, I really opened the floodgates. No, I say that when, <laughs> when we were reading trouble. books uh, in Welsh. Yeah. So instead of having, say, cowboy novels or adventure stories, everything would be set in Patagonia, where people called Ilted and, you know, Erwad would be riding through the pampas, <laughs> drinking mate, having adventures in really fluent Welsh. Sounds delightful. Sounds good. Anyway, so, so just, just cut the cord, bring me back to reality. Um, just quickly, you said 
You said both deep tail and long tail. Are those synonyms or is there a new form of long tail that's deeper than we'd thought? I, I think I think it gets deeper. Every, <laughs> <laughs> I think it's gone beyond... Oh, Chris Anderson's mind would be blown, showing, showing yeah. my age slightly there, but who, who wrote a book, who was editor of Wired, I think, yeah. in the 1990s. Um, talking about how important the long tail was going to be for the internet, and all the rest of the internet's kind of forgotten about this now. But I'm mm. still, I'm still plowing away. Um, <laughs> but every time we add another supplier or another, mm. the kind of challenge that we've got there is about making sure now that these are definitely the sort of. When I say the sort of books, I'm not talking in a judgmental manner. I'm talking about the kind of problems that the big platforms have got around what Cory Doctorow has called shitification. Yes. Uh, I'll put a link into that article, actually. It's a very good, very um, good piece. So, for example, it's quite easy for print-on-demand operators, not necessarily even publishers, to kind of go and strip stuff off Wikipedia and then just oh. produce a book <laughs> or get AI to write a book and make it available. Yeah. Um, and these are not books that you would really think of as books. You would think of them as nonsense. Or <laughs> 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 just search results. Exactly. Yeah. So it just becomes, it just muddies everything mm. and it makes it even harder. And I think for me, that's actually a bigger opportunity. It's, it's a new opportunity for booksellers to do stuff really well. Yeah. Because you want to make sure that you're going to buy something that's mm. yeah. what you're after. Not. So, so just focusing back then on the different brands as your sort of experience, stimulus, moderation, weigh into this enormous quantity of books. From your group perspective, maintaining those different fascias, let's call it, pathways, that is something that strategically you want to do and see the benefit of rather than, say, having a, a homogenous white coat answer to everything environment? Yes, definitely. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And I think they... It's, it's, you're putting it quite starkly. Uh, I think it's, I think it's, I think it's really important because I think we care about um, we all care about books, actually, which which makes the kind of combined entity work really well yeah. because we all still care about books and we all say we're booksellers and we all share that. And actually, culturally, that's really helpful because it's unlike other kind of acquisitions where yeah. you're you're kind of there might be very many differences about what you're trying to do, but we still want to sell books. We still want to get we get excited about books. But we know we've got slightly different customers. Yeah. Um, and the same goes for kind of metropolitan foils and, and all yeah. this. So, and I think we surface different books in those brands, mm. yeah. which is why it's still worth it. So that's surfacing. There's a little digital twitch mm. going on now that says, oh, hang on, shouldn't we now be talking about AI-powered recommendation engines that can look across these gabillion titles and read the minds of the customer and then surface the most relevant slash profitable slash whatever. Um, why do you still need a bookseller? We recently did a, a challenge where we asked ChatGPT to give recommendations for certain questions and then we posed those same questions to booksellers. Mm. Oh. I mean, obviously we were doing it, so we were slightly biased here. <laughs> Now, what we found, we found two weird, actually, one weird, very weird thing, which the booksellers didn't do, is that the AI made up made some up. books, which oh. we don't do that. Because, because <laughs> it's heavily hallucinating. Uh, and they sounded very plausible, but they yeah. did not exist. Uh, and we were able to verify that. So that, but ignoring that, and, and that's probably a temporary thing. Yeah. The recommendations were fine, but they were boring. Mm. actually and they were not they were not the kind of left field connections or they were yeah. just the next step yeah now, it was the logical step exactly is, and yeah. that's not always what you want i mean yeah. sometimes you sometimes you do want that and actually you could have a kind of mechanical linking mm. which would satisfy i suppose for want of a better word um i think yeah the, the surprise that when not surprise. But the, the, surprise. <laughs> no, but I the unexpected, right? The unexpected yeah. and the connection is to go, yeah. well, okay, well, again, the, the LLM seem to forget what came before. So yeah. it's always the book that comes after. Yeah. And you can go, well, actually, that was influenced by these things. Uh, and going yeah. back to kind of Peter's quote, which 
you know, it's, the, the internet's great for telling you stuff if you look it up, but actually it's, it's better to know stuff. Yeah. And that knowing is, is kind of broader in terms of the engagement mm. with, with culture, I yeah. suppose, more broadly. I mean, I basically have the inverse question, which is, I think, you know, we, we've landed on the, the role, and I think everyone has some level of nostalgia and romance around kind of a bookstore and can understand, especially based off <laughs> AI making up books, the, the role of the bookmaker. So how about the inverse, which is actually, how do you, especially in your role as digital director, how do you digitise that? Because that's a very hard thing to therefore do. So removing ChatGPT from it for the moment, obviously with the tools available to you, how are you? Because exactly, like if I buy a book, what the next best book for me is, V, what, you know, Ian and I might have bought the same book for different, entirely different reasons, most likely. Yeah, the Haynes Manual <laughs> the on Haynes looking Man. after your cat. <laughs> Very different <laughs> reasons. Um, so how do you mm. kind of start to approach even, I, I can't begin to think how you take that amazing in-store experience and begin to digitise it. That's a better question than mine. <laughs> Thank you. I had time while yeah. he was answering yours. <laughs> we edited that to yeah. it sound like I said it. <laughs> I, some of it's about sharing the experience in the bookshop. So we, we mm. still do online events and mm. say, well, so the yeah. new book um, about history of the female body yeah. uh, called Eve, which is great. And the, the author we met before it had been published and she was fantastic yeah. and really kind of expressive and passionate about it. So we said, well, everybody who pre-orders this book is going to get invited to a meeting with the author and whether they order it offline or online yeah. or whatever. So we could create that kind of discussion and excitement. So that's one element of that is to still say, mm. well, look, we're excited about it. We want you to be excited about it. We can make a human connection. Um, the other side is kind of more structural where... <sighs> Get, this is this could this could derail this and go into something really boring around bibliographic categories and stuff. Oh, where, we, <laughs> love we love having that. a nice boring conversation. Oh, we love a taxonomy. We well, do. Yeah. So um, you can edit this out. <laughs> Just cut. Uh, and it, it, we the book trade is really here is organised around something called BIC, okay. which is book industry classifications. Now, book industry classifications is coming to a sunset period early next year. Right. And we're replacing it with something called Thema, okay. which is both a hierarchical tree, but also um, what are called qualifiers. And I actually, I think... And by qualifiers, we're talking about, say, tags or attributes. Uh, they there. could, yes. Um, it could also be that there was a, a principal character, whether that be a fictional one or mm -hmm. a non-fictional, or a, an actual person, oh. um, or it could be uh, age groups. It oh. could be, and would themes. the character be someone like, let's say, Jason Bourne, who inhabits several books? Yes, because you could have different authors there, or you could have Napoleon. Yes, heard of him, for example. There's been a couple of books published since he died. Apparently. <laughs> um, but what's what's interesting about it is that's going back, I think, to leaning into that long tail of niches. Right. So if you're say interested in the history of East Germany, mm -hmm. but you're not just interested in that classification tree where you end up in history, yes. end up in Germany, end, end up, up in, in Germany, 1945 East, yeah. to yeah. 1989. Now, you might say, well, if you're a, one of your qualifiers is East Germany, you're interested in philosophy, you're interested in plays, you're interested in mm. fiction that came out of East Germany. Mm. So I think one of our, some of our role as booksellers is to really work with publishers to help with service some of these. So... If you so diversity and inclusion, for example, if you wanted to find books with a character who has Down syndrome in, mm. you'd be really hard pressed to do that. And certainly the large language models could not answer that. Yeah. Um, but actually, if we work with publishers and, and other booksellers to kind of use that as a qualifier, you can start to say, well, actually, I could get you know, yeah. books with these characters or I could get some a book that's a special oh. of special interest because it isn't it's aimed at adults, but it's aimed at adults who have got a learning and would disability, that drive so. in that process, I imagine you, just to your point, identify gaps? And does that then drive kind of awareness to the publishers on kind of where you may or may not? Yeah, because actually a lot of this stuff is not very visible to yeah. publishers because mm. they'll go, oh, okay, well, that's a whole new market. I never even thought yeah, of exactly. this book. Uh, and that's our role. Everyone as, as... is now rushing. <laughs> I think, yeah, I mean, that, it, it, it's the volume of that. Yeah. 
and the opportunity of that is really fascinating. Now, you could potentially, mm-hmm. before you shut me up, you could potentially use AI to help I was create say, mm, some yes. of those qualifiers because yeah. it, it could trawl through some of that text. Yeah. It could do some of the heavy lifting. Because that is like a major learning set. Yeah, yes. Exactly. Yeah. As long as we trust it not to of make course. stuff up. But what you've pointed out there is interesting because it's not static. So a lot of the old taxonomies would last forever because of the way they were sort of linear in their sort of levels. But what you're talking about here is if you take something like um, diversity, if you'd said diversity in 1980, it meant something different. If you said it in 1900, it meant something different. So there are going to be new attitudes, ideas, inventions, social constructs that mean you have to keep going back, adding, amending, etc. So who gets to do that? So in the old big days, it was a top-down, controlled classification. You're now talking about knowledgeable people, culturally, we're skipping through these vast databases. Can they amend it? What's the process for sort of mapping, if you like, that organic change of, you know, it's a cultural map, really? Yeah. In the first instance, it's going to be publishers. Mm. Um, and we can edit any of that data. Mm-hmm. Uh, my, I'm prototyping, that's a terribly difficult word to say on, <laughs> because, um, in, to publishers to get them to do that so they can really envision what not existing within a hierarchical tree looks like, yeah. as well as it sitting in its sort of preferred categories. I think there is an exciting future where potentially... I mean, it would need some gatekeeping, but customers could also be Mm. involved in that because they're going to see stuff as well. So there is a potential democratization of the of the hierarchy there that um, that appeals. Very interesting. I'm going to stop myself now. Every time I just show what a rubbish interview I am. Sometimes it's forgetting to introduce people, but this time I realised we just dived in because we've just been chatting over lunch. We haven't even asked you what on earth your job is. Well, this is what I was attempting to do by bringing it back to the role Thank of you. the digital, you see. And I said, Thank you. how about you earlier? Like, I tried segueing it. Well, <laughs> what can I say? What can I say? Some people just won't be taught. Can I, can <laughs> we, I say we, that? I mean, we've, uh, been, we've been talking about it. I know. Just been... tell us in, in a, a, a sort of summary what it is you do and what your performance objectives are. <laughs> Your KPIs, can yeah, you give us your KPIs? Oh dear. This was a, oh dear. <laughs> and then we'll tell you how you do it. It's gone south rather quickly. But, um, George is very good at giving, you know, post-event appraisals, as I know. Yeah, <laughs> It's becoming on air now. That's it, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, dearie me. Yeah, D minus, Jindal, carry on. Um, on. Well, so, I mean, we've been covering a lot of the things that I do, because yeah. I do think a lot about taxonomies and stuff, but on a practical day-to-day basis, I look after work with my my colleagues in terms of software engineering distribution customer service i've got an end-to-end ownership luckily mm-hmm. so i can all the team works together in terms of that yeah. uh, and with me in terms of selling books and we would say we were all booksellers so. yeah i love that that's so nice isn't it i love that but actually um because i'm gonna make it back um because we got very excited and we went down taxonomies and hierarchies and tree the word tree as well which was fantastic but um on bringing that experience when you talked about kind of bringing the in-store experience and like meeting the reader and whatever i was thinking a lot about um had a chat recently who is i'm gonna get his title wrong but i think he's the chief customer officer i'm gonna call him that for real madrid and he was talking a lot about how you create fandom globally with people that will probably never, ever come to a game Mm. and how you kind of still create excitement and fans and digitize that. And it was really interesting because it was a lot of it quite simple when you think about it, but it's like, how can I watch that game in the best possible way? Or what are things that I can have that could connect me to that um, stadium experience? And I think that's a little bit about kind of where bookstores are trying to get to right it's the fans of literature and how do you yeah very experiential yeah i mean i think that's kind of where retail wants to go yeah or mass actually Mm. uh except for those really really banging the kind of value drum but yeah everyone else wants to go to that point and that's something that booksellers we're very lucky with the amount of content that we have to play with and the amount of talented people that we work with but yeah i think 
that's the difference that we that we really really have at the end of the day mm. yeah and is that kind of a, a mandate for you I guess in your role is that something that you're kind of looking at over the next few years like how do you increasingly do that and I guess then even more interestingly what does your experiential look like the to kind of Ian's earlier point one of your brother or sisters because you've got the same issue then again don't you yeah and some of that's about yeah kind of different authors for different brands yeah uh, and Ooh, some of our partners there not not that you couldn't buy it from them but yeah. that you build up a particular relationship mm. with them and we become as like a talent us. agency what well, <laughs> I, I, I suppose mean, I guess you quite quite a little, are a little exactly. bit aren't you it's a kind you of have flat, Messi someone else has Ronaldo yeah um good football knowledge <laughs> that's it I've peaked there <laughs> Uh, so I think there's an element of that. Yeah. I think there, there's also the product itself. If we can have, you know, different brands will have different exclusive editions mm. and signed editions mm. and all that lovely stuff on top to add a little bit more value. Yeah. Um, that tends to be fiction, but not always. Yeah. Um, we've had a signed Varoufakis just about, tech, you know, techno-futurism yeah. and, Got and it. Um, right. end of capitalism and that sort of stuff. So it, it, it's... Again, horses for courses. Yeah. Yeah. End of capitalism after your credit card clears. Yeah, if you just let that go through. Yeah. <laughs> and then bought, end of capitalism. Yeah. <laughs> Once you've paid your, yeah. what you owe. Exactly. Yes, no, I've done that, honestly. Now, what makes a bookseller? So we often talk about how frontline staff in retail are incredibly skilled, resilient, passionate, knowledgeable service-focused, blah, blah, blah. So let's look specifically at, at your world where we seem to be adding on top of that they have to be well-read and passionate about you know certain subject matter areas, able to give recommendations, etc. So if you were recruiting, let's say, your replacement, which hopefully this uh, <laughs> podcast would precipitate. We've moved, we've moved on from my appraisal to yeah, my appraisal. Yes, I, I see where that went. Yeah. <laughs> I just looked at, I looked at George and he's the thumbs down. Well, that's it. He finally put a structure into the podcast. <laughs> we've got, we're going for your KPIs. And this is the decline, the end of Kieran's career. No, yeah. um, but let's say you were recruiting for a replacement and you had a whole pile of retailers queuing up. They were very good retailers from very big brands. Is there something extra, a je ne sais quoi, that you'd be looking for that says, in order to succeed in this bookselling world, these are some additional or particularly important attributes needed? So there's for you, but also, you know, if you're hiring someone to work in one of your stores, you know, what, what's the extra needed? That's quite, that's quite a tough question, actually. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, in a way, when I'm recruiting, I, I quite enjoy recruiting people who are really different. Mm-hmm. Because, again, when you're thinking about, I think one of the big dangers in corporations is taking on the same people mm. as you mm. and kind of just looking for someone else who's going to fit in a particular way. Right. And I, I love it that the software developers that we've taken on, unprompted, have put like what book they're reading on the bottom of their mm. signature. Uh, and yeah. You know, will email me like one of them emailed me this week saying personal question, and I thought, oh god, uh -oh. they're not going to be moving or something. <laughs> yeah. Like, any chance we could get a signed copy of this? Uh, yeah. So yeah. It, it, it's it's more than just a love of books. Right. Actually, it's a kind of the slightly weird ability to press that book into someone else's hands and go, yeah. "You have to read this. Oh. Let me know what you think." Oh, yeah. And I and I I, that, that that's yeah. a bit different. I know that. <laughs> No, so, I love that. I think that's very isn't, beautifully isn't that, said. Isn't that, again, you know, when you go into a store, whether either purpose-led or passionate about either the clothes, the fashion or something, where they become evangelical yes. because they want to make your life better through imparting this knowledge or something else. Yeah, and the bookshop is the one place that you can do that without... Mm. Having a court order. Exactly. <laughs> being restrained. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, yeah. I think that's lovely. And we were talking earlier about the great lengths, like the, how, how much a bookseller has to span. You know, you were saying some of the, the challenges that a bookseller would have in terms of someone doing their PhD who has an incredibly, I guess, specific ask that they need someone to know. The someone coming in with a teenager or their <laughs> yes. young kid and kind of wanting total inspiration for for something fun and off the world. Like it, it really is. 
the amount of information you have to kind of store in your in your mind. Yeah, you've got to. You've, the one thing that the, the AI could never answer, of course, was when they go, "I saw it at the front of the shop, and it was blue." Yeah, <laughs> and that stereotypically, you know, that's the kind of the question you have to be able to answer in a bookshop. And it is the question you have to answer in a bookshop because it, you, they will. Cause I, I can't remember. And of course, it's not even blue; it's yellow. But they, <laughs> the, the, you have to have this kind of very visual memory, but also mm. a, a real sort of meta understanding of all the all the books around you in a, in a very complex um, model. We have a first for the podcast. Oh, I love a first. So um, I'm just going to rustle something. And George is going to join me. So before Kieran agreed to come on the podcast, he sent us a, a questionnaire demanding, rather <laughs> rather firmly, I thought, to know our favourite recent books we'd read. Mm. Um, so after I'd asked ChatGPT... <laughs> Yours what, are very intellectual. What I should say, <laughs> uh, we answered. And then uh, Kieran's very kindly brought us a book which is wrapped up wrapped. in brown paper. I'm going to take a photo oh, now oh, so you... I can put it up later just to show it is wrapped, beautifully yeah. wrapped. Should we open them now? Yeah. Go on, I'm getting okay. you opening it. I'm just opening it now. This is so nicely wrapped, I tell you. I'm just doing this for the ASMR fans amongst us. So tell me about the, um, the process for picking... Uh, oh. What have you got? Oh, Tokyo Express. Have you you've already say, read? No, I haven't. Okay. But I wanted to, because <laughs> I'd seen it recommended. This is a, a Seicho uh, Matsumoto Tokyo Express, an irresistible Hitchcockian gem. No, I've not, oh, I didn't go quite round. as left field as I could have done. Yeah, you can slightly see through the paper on that one. So oh, I did it oh, you did? Well, it's so thoughtful. Look at that double thing. So you... And hold on. Oh, what have I you got? Have got? I have not read it. Okay. Um, I've got A Gentleman in Moscow by Amor Tal. Tal? Tolls, tolls, I think. Tolls, I think. Tolls, I'm, I'm too worried that I've worked on so, online so often I can't Great. remember yeah. to say oh, people's wow. So we should say, of course, that um, on this independent podcast, mm. we are open to all bribes and inducements, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> cash, <laughs> books, whatever. So uh, this is not exceptional, but uh, it is exceptional. Uh, thank you so much for that. Tell us how you went about picking that rather than just yeah. entering into Google um, recommend based on <laughs> what what we just touched my chest in horror. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, your last couple of books that you'd read were obviously uh, very Japanese they were very oriented, Japanese. Uh, and I and as I said, I could have gone a bit more left field and offered something that I think you might have liked from that. But I've I've gone fairly linear with this, with yeah. kind of, and this one's only recently been made available in this translation. I thought it might appeal because it's it's a kind of it's a mystery where a couple are found dead um, with really rosy cheeks, yeah. and everyone thinks it's some sort of suicide pact. But as a detective who thinks <gasps> it's, it's not, it's we'll perfect. have to swap off. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I'll finish mine before yours because yours is about four hundred times the size of mine. Okay. Well, you also said you were very busy reading other things. <laughs> I thought a short, a short <laughs> book might appeal. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, and also, it's got trains in it, so yes. I, nice. I, I felt that might appeal as well. <laughs> Thank you. And I did. I did mention there are lots of mysteries and crying my eyes out on travel. So uh, great. So hope. Well, let me know what you think. Which I will. Is, do. Of course, the important follow-up question. And do I tell that. you, or do I have to go into a store and talk to one of your expert staff? You, you can do either. Thank That's you. That's a nice thing. All of our booksellers are interchangeable in that sense. Equally wonderful. And. Well, I, I mean, I wasn't listening to the first half of that explanation because I was reading the back of this one. <laughs> and uh, I'm very excited. This looks exactly the type of book I'd love. So, uh, have you heard of it before? No. Okay, so A Gentleman in Moscow uh, is about a count who is consigned... Uh, consigned, is that the word? Um, yeah. He's told he had to stay in his suite... Confined. In hotel in... Confined, yeah. sorry, yeah. that's not consigned. Um, think about logistics, yes. <laughs> uh, um, being consigned there as well. Um, he has to stay in his suite in a hotel in Moscow mm. um, after the Russian Revolution. Okay. Um, so there's a bit of a historical... Yes, there's a, a bit I, of a historical... Yeah, I do like and, history. But you're, so you, you're also very good writers. And yes. Amor is a very good writer indeed. The only reason he's not executed after the Russian Revolution is that he's penned this anti-Tsarist poem, yeah. which the Bolsheviks think, great, this is fiction, by the way, yeah. not, <laughs> um, think that he should be let off, but he has to stay in this hotel. And this is where kind of the book kicks off, yeah. and each chapter is a doubling of Ooh. time. Ooh. 
So it's also got a kind of yes. structural interest, which nice. kind I of do. Donna Tart yes. stuff as well sometimes weaves in. So it's like, I think it's one day, then two days, then five, then ten, um, wow. and then into months and years, yeah. up to about 16 years after, I think. And then it reverses, not reverses, but I think goes back in time, but then halves yeah. again. Oh. Um, and it's about the people he meets in the hotel and the way in which he interacts with what's going on around the hotel. And it's it, it's very engaging and I hope yeah. you enjoy it. So Lovely. both of them are quite... Well, I will put the links to these in the uh, podcast notes just in yeah. case anyone else wants to... Uh, read them and um after those lovely intros and they can tell us what they think as well indeed um oh we formed an unofficial podcast book club i love it <laughs> okay maybe we have well you just have you asked people to put no, in there right i did, <laughs> you did. honestly something just slipped out uh now uh, our listener is thinking they don't normally have such erudite people on the podcast well, <laughs> you've just, <laughs> just insulted single-handedly insulted every previous Let me rephrase guest. that. Of all the erudite, lovely people we have on the podcast, Better. Um, Kieran must have an interesting background. And uh, one thing I will spoil is say you've been in book selling for most of your career. But what interested me and rather intimidated me as I looked at your LinkedIn profile is you seem to have Tourette's qualification syndrome in that you can't stop doing degrees, diplomas. So I should have introduced you as, as Dr. Kieran, PhD, MBA, A degree, at least three diplomas, I think I count on the way. Commitment to lifelong learning. It's fun, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. I think you used earlier, you said it might be uh, slightly... Uh... Oh, I was going to say sadistic, but that's not the word. Oh, masochistic. 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 <laughs> it might be sadistic on those around me. Yeah. yeah. Um, I've always wanted to understand around me, whether mm. that be a business context with the MBA, because I kind of couldn't, after doing a politics degree, Yeah. business didn't seem to make a lot of sense to me. <laughs> <It doesn't laughs> in many ways, I mean, no, politics doesn't either. But, um, and actually, the MBA was really, really helpful in kind of contextualising it and Mm. It gave me an excuse of loads of books to go and buy and read at the time. <laughs> and uh, so that that's always good. And yeah, and, and then doing a research PhD again was a chance to actually work with colleagues because I did a yeah. participatory research into participatory. Do they have any choice? Or was it oh the bosses well, like told to us to think so? They were they were volunteers and well, I don't think they your were... PhD on democracy. It's quite yes, <laughs> why, why it needed a de- democratic research method. Um Do they just happened to work for you democratically. Uh, with with me. We're, we're all very we're, we're very they're uh, all booksellers. Yeah, we're, we're all book co- very collegiate. Yeah. Excellent. Yes. And so what's next then? So you know you've you did your politics degree known throughout the world for the in-depth digital technology coding background that gives you. You're right. trying to recover from sacking me earlier, aren't you? No, 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 I'm just giving you a chance to apply for the, No, no. Um, <laughs> so you, you, you moved into digital. You looked at broad business and strategy, organisational design, participatory working, et cetera, et cetera. Is that enough now for you to leverage and grow the business or you need to learn something else in the next year or two what what's what's next on the list to know the world more i doubt it's enough because things keep changing yeah mm-hmm. you know it's it's a lot of the things in the phd that are really good are ways to think about information and mm. ways to kind of work with colleagues to understand mm. the world around us because it it's kind of taking that micro model and then looking at things more broadly to try to work out what's what's changing around us and what's happening, mm. and especially in retail where there's a huge amount of infrastructural change going on. Technology doesn't slow down, mm. no. as we know. It's a, it's a cliche in itself. And again, it's a useful model of kind of stepping back and then looking yeah. at stuff and trying to work out what's mm-hmm. happening. But no, it will never be enough. I think it, it would be... I'd like to have the time to kind of sit back and reflect and yeah. look at the world in a slight... And force, it forces you to do that outside of your own kind of day-to-day role. Mm. Yeah. To say, right, I may feel really tired, but I'm going to spend the next two hours reading this and then yeah. someone else challenging the way I look at things. Um, and that's really exciting. So uh, I'm just conscious of time. I mean, 
we, we've we've spoken for hours already, so this is, uh, if you like, just a bit of it. But um, to just let's pause and look forward. So um, the book industry seems to be at a healthier point than it has been for a long time, in that those that are in the game seem to be doing well and mentally touching wood and wishing everyone well. Um, there's a growth in publishing, uh, sharing expertise. So things are sort of, you know, they're not looking bad, not saying not going to jinx it. So if you are now pitching um, a, a novel to say, I'm going to describe the next couple of years of book selling, how does that look? What's the, what's the summary or the blurb on the back about what's going to be happening in your industry in the next couple of years? You've taken me at my word and looking at the broader context. I, mean, I know. <laughs> oh, I didn't say it wasn't difficult. That's why I keep studying. Um, I mean, I think we, as, as I've kind of intimated earlier, I, I think there's going to be more and more importance for that kind of authenticity and mm. for that human filtering of knowledge mm. uh, and to make sure that we can surface the stuff that's really important because of the kind of counter pressure from AI and from really noisy platforms and finding it really difficult to get hold of knowledge uh, in trustworthy ways. So I think that books have a unique kind of content editing role in our society mm. that that's really important, actually. Mm -hmm. So still, although we're in a better kind of position, as you say, touch wood, with the kind of um, commercial aspects of the business. I think the challenges are around continuing to publish those kind of traditional publishing houses, how they're affected by self-publishing and and those growing trends as well and ebooks and all the rest of it. And I, and I think there's still that case to be made um, every day for wrapping books up and giving them to people. Um, so <laughs> that I, I think it's developing that and also developing you know, in a kind of more micro way within the group that we now exist in within within Waterstones is mm. to is to kind of work out what things it makes sense to share on a very practical basis mm. and what other things it makes sense to keep ploughing our own particular approaches to, to customers. Great. That answers that question. Uh, it does. Of. Beautifully. And I think um I think one's, there's always a weakness in summing up, so I'm not going to do that. But I am <laughs> going to uh, I think just reflect slightly on the uh, the richer perspective you've given us. Because mm. like if someone just landed today, went to a web browser, the first thing they would see is, oh, look, there's a bookshop with a product description page, a blurb, a couple of attributes. It's just e-commerce. And I think if we've learned one thing today, it's the richness, mm. both the in terms of what's offered, tale. the deep tale that... Uh, is now going to do that could be the title <laughs> of, of this the deep tale the or, deep tale. or of our next novel oh. how, are you, how are you spelling tale there you going? Oh, oh oh and a oh. pun sorry yes all right well, i and think we we just have to stop now stop we've peaked <laughs> kevin <laughs> thank you so much georgia thank you thank as you. ever thank you. wonderful chatting thank you Have you ever noticed that you already get invited to do it? I wouldn't invite you. And you never get invited back. So what people say is he was so lovely, he bought a nice book, but I felt so inadequate I'm not inviting him back. Never talk to him again. Well, the good thing is that you've also made all of our previous guests feel inadequate if they listen to this. I very much doubt that. And having listened to some of your previous I know that is not true. They'll give me grief later, I'm sure.